This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Campaign frames. Yithians. Fictional worldviews. And the California Gold Rush. Cheers for Master is a new card game from Atlas Games. In Three Cheers for Master, the good news is that Master has conquered the world. Hurrah! The bad news is that now Master is depressed. Turns out he was not actually prepared for that. What is an evil overlord to do after he achieves his life's ambition? But that's on him. What about you? You're a lieutenant in Master's army, and when Master's bummed, it's the minions who suffer. The good news is that Master's gone away. The bad news is that Master's going to come back. The good news is you've got a plan. The bad news is it's not a very good plan, because frankly, you're not all that smart. Your plan is this. You're going to coach all of Master's ravenous, homicidal, war-hungry minions to pile on top of each other into cheerleading towers. Then, when Master comes back, the minions in your pile will all wave their pom-poms and penance and hoot and holler and cheer. And maybe Master won't kill you. At least if your tower is best, maybe Master won't kill you. Because everyone else is building their own towers and trying to get Master not to kill them. You see how bad things are? It gets worse. The problem with the towers is that the minions in your tower all want to kill each other. And when the minions at the bottom of the tower kill each other, the minions above them fall. And when falling minions are heavy, that's what a capital H must be a game term, they kill the minions they land on. And hungry minions eat weak minions even when they're not feeling violent. And claustrophobic minions die whenever they're surrounded by other minions. And you can never tell which direction a ninja minion is going to attack. At least flying minions can remain above the fray. Unless someone stops a heavy minion on top of them, and they fall and get crushed. And die. Three Cheers for Master is a new card game from Atlas Games. It's in stores now. Look alert, minion! Master is coming! The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crinkle of Doritos bags, the beneficent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive tell us we've once more entered the friendly, shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, we play games, we play individual games, we play lengthily connected games, which we call campaigns after the old wargaming term. But within these campaigns, how do we differentiate them? What makes one campaign like another? What are the salient features, in another word, of campaign frames? Robin, do you have thoughts on that favorite term of mine? Yes, my uh, my thoughts on this turn to the fact that I have uh, an assignment uh, to write for one of the later ancillary sort of PDF-y, I think, uh, bits of the Dracula dossier, uh, and I'm, my task is to write an esoterrorist campaign frame for that. Now, a cynical listener, and I'm sure there's no, no one listens to Ken and Robert talk about stuff on a cynical basis. No, but, they listen out of a largeness of spirit and a goodness of heart. Right. But if we were to posit the existence of a cynical listener, perhaps Well, if our, the, if our uh, advertising campaign, our marketing, pushing out into the cynical community, which I understand is very big. Right. So... If that positive hypothetical non-existent cynical listener uh, were listening at this point, they might think Robin is just uh, using this segment as a way to bounce ideas off of Ken and make his uh, job easier and get his uh, uh, mind in gear for this assignment. But no, no, nothing could be further from the truth. 
Uh, so a campaign frame uh, I would define as, uh, and this is something that we've featured in a lot of different uh, Gumshoe uh, projects, and uh, I think there are, there's more than just one uh, of my thing attached to Dracula dossier, yeah. but it's basically a further narrowing of the scope of whatever game it is to do a specific thing. So you might think of it as a spin-off of the main game and one that uh, usually, but not necessarily, tightens or alters its core activity. So if, for example, in D&D, the core activity is to explore, fight, and gain treasure and power, if you then say, well, here's a campaign where you uh, do those things in the context of a great uh, gothic world ruled over by a vampire, well, essentially, there you've got something that is not only a setting, you know, and those of you who know D&D know that I'm talking about uh, Ravenloft, but is also a campaign frame because it changes not only the mood of what's going on in the game, but also the... Uh, sorts of things that you're supposed to do. So that implies that you're engaging in sort of gothic storylines, which are not just killing and exploring, but that you will probably wind up having to go and talk to their vampire count and talk to other uh, gothic figures and deal with gothic romancy things and so forth. And so for further example, some of the other campaign frames uh, attached to Dracula dossier, which is already, you could argue, is a campaign frame of Knight's Black Agents, um, is... Uh, there are ways to further tighten uh, what it is, and some of them involve, as in the Esoterra's one, sort of porting it into another game world. So here's how to use all of this stuff with the Esoterra's rules instead of the Knight's Black Agent rules. But w what other examples of campaign frames did you include in that? Well, within Dracula Dossier, we have, uh, parallel to your uh, campaign frame, the, there is Perveniate Calyx, which is Ryan Macklin's drama system series pitch. Uh, using the Dracula dossier world and Kevin Culp is doing a time watch campaign frame to add time travel or move Dracula dossier into a time travel space within the book. Uh, there are also, uh, my campaign frame, the abhorred truth, which is a introduction of the mythos into the Dracula dossier, recasting, uh, the story in the light of the Cthulhu mythos and emphasizing the uh, two main Cthulhuid locations in Romania, the Black Stone and good old Castle Ferenczi from Charles Dexter Ward. And Kenan Bauman's They Saved Hitler's Blood, which uh, is the airport thriller version of Dracula Dossier, in which you are good-looking, unshaven agents fighting the Fourth Reich, because that's who people fight in the uh, airport thrillers, even today, which I suppose is good, because you can't let uh, Dracula get out. Or the Nazis. And finally, we have Gareth uh, Hanrahan's, uh, with a, with some help from me, campaign frame, Unto the Fourth Generation, in which you play the entire narrative of Operation Edom from 1894 to the present day. So it's a four-part uh, uh, campaign starting in 1894. Then you play out the mission in Romania in 1940. Then you play out the mole hunt in 1977. Then you play out the modern-day uh, hunt for the Dracula dossier and the War on Terror. So it's a... It's, it's sort of a macro campaign frame. And rather than changing up the setting in the way that, say, Ravenloft does for D&D, what it does is it does what I think is maybe the more purest definition of campaign frame, taking a kind of play that is already possible within the core book and then amplifying and exemplifying it. So in Trail of Cthulhu, 
Uh, Book Hounds of London is a campaign frame. Nothing in it is really something you can't do or might not do anyway in Trail of Cthulhu. It just focuses in on that one sort of story and adds some rules support for telling that kind of story. And you can argue, I suppose, that a porting of the uh, setting over into another rule set, even a friendly uh, rule set like as a terrorists is kind of half adrift, what they call a drift, I think in the, in the hip indie community and half campaign frame, because obviously you're focusing in an as a terrorists game on the question of, is this real in a way that you're not doing in Dracula dossier, you could play a Knights black agents game focusing on the question, is this real? But in, um, uh, by using it within the context of the Azoterrorists, adding the Ordo uh, Veritatis and the rest of the stuff, you're moving it also sort of over into a new type of setting. And that, I think, is where the terminology of Campaign Frame, like all proper role-playing game te- uh, terminology, uh, contains, what I want to say, uh, multiple meanings. Right. We're, we're not going to be bound by mere categories and definitions. Ta-cha! As readers of Aristotle, we, we spit on such thoughts. Yes. Our, our job is twofold. One to create new categories, and B, then to blow them up. Mm -hmm. Um, So basically, though, we're looking at a couple of different approaches, one of which is uh, you could call a drift or perhaps a mashup because you're taking uh, something that's originally tuned for one genre and moving it into another quite separate genre. And then the second one is the subgenre. So uh, the uh, Bookhounds of London, for example, or the airport thriller uh, Dracula uh, one are both examples of tightening the focus within the same genre into a style or subgenre. But in either case, uh, what we're looking at is basically a re-envisioning of the core activity of the game. And it may be just as simple a thing as, well, this time you're fighting flying bears. Or it can be quite specific in terms of, well, here's how to evoke all of the different uh, tropes and moods of film noir or the airport thriller or the uh, Clancy-esque techno thriller, if that's actually a separate thing from the airport thriller. I don't know if it is. And so uh, what steps do uh, do we want to go through if the uh, listener at home wants to create a uh, campaign frame for their uh, favorite game? So let's step outside uh, our immediate work for, for the moment and say that you want to use whatever rule system in the traveler setting, but you want to have a new campaign frame. And often the reason, I guess, for campaign frame we should go into is uh, that you have maybe already played kind of the default version of the game for a while and want to do uh, something that people are both familiar with, but gives them a bit of a twist on top of that, which is the secret of much popular entertainment. And so you're (laughs) wanting to narrow the focus and create your campaign frame for a uh, traveler game. So what would be the first step in creating a traveler campaign frame? I think I want to say right at the top that um, the other reason to do a campaign frame is because you have a game or a game uh, standard game universe that is so broad and rich and full of stuff that you almost want to provide a campaign frame right on top to get everyone thinking about in the same direction. Uh, Traveler being a great example, because with Traveler, you could play a game where you stay in the Imperial Court. You could play a game where you're... desperately needs a campaign frame, which is why I picked it. Space Pirates, whatever it happens to be. So with Traveler, what I think you want to ask yourself, and, and this is something perhaps the GDW should have asked itself, what kind of stories are you interested in telling within the Traveler universe and with the Traveler 
uh, aesthetic, right? And so that might be, all right, we're going to tell an Asimov's robots story. We're going to talk about robots in this universe. There aren't a lot of robots in Traveler. Uh, we can add some. We can make them proper Asimovian robots so that it still has that same uh, 50s, 60s, 40s science fiction feel that um, uh, golden uh, post sort of silver age of science fiction, if you will, that Traveler uh, celebrates. We're not going to go with, you know, Zoxing and, and all the kind of post-human crazy stuff. We're going to stick with good old Positrons. And but we're going to have robots when we're going to put robots in and we're going to be maybe playing in a, uh, a couple of few planets where the imperial governor has been given special leave to introduce robots because there's a lot of dangerous industrial uh, work to be done and he can't get human recruits to do it. And so you will be robot specialists, robot builders, robot designers, uh, guys who have fought robot uprisings before because the three laws don't always hold out there when Jodani are able to mess with people's uh, positronic brains, stuff like that. So you've got a whole variety of characters, just like in Bookhounds, who are specialists in robots. And so the games, the, 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 the contract is you players build a bunch of guys who really care about robots and know a lot about robots. And I, the GM will make sure that all the adventures pretty much deal with robots or are present problems that your robotic knowledge can solve. Even if all it involves is you reprogramming the industrial robots to become deadly laser wielding defenders of the asteroid when space pirates attack. Right. So how many components do we have here? First of all, we have the uh, core concept, which is we're doing Asimov style uh, robots. And so the uh, core activity is the players interact with and have adventures arising from their interactions with robots. Uh, then you have, I think probably th at least three different things. One of which is, notes on style. So uh, this would be ways to make people feel that they're in an Asimov story from, right. you know, how to uh, characterize the PCs or, uh, you know, remove characterization from the PCs in this particular instance uh, in order to make them feel like Asimov characters. Uh, how do you, uh, what are all the little uh, descriptive visual items? This might be the, the tech list, for example, or, you know, how do you make them feel that they're in an Asimov story? Uh, then there is the, uh, what new crunchy bits do you need in order to tell a story of this nature? Because generally in whatever rule set you're using in the traveler's setting, robotics would either be its own skill or maybe even just a one thing that you can do with an even broader engineering skill. Right. But if everybody is a robot scientist, you know, except, you know, possibly a few outliers who are, you know, the marketing guy or the head of security, but if almost everybody... Or the robot. <laughs> yes, or the robot. Well, the, the robot almost undoubtedly knows how to fix robots. Yeah, you think, think so. That's, that's a given. <laughs> um, so you need to have a breakdown... Uh, robotics into a bunch of different uh, subskills in order to give each person a robotic specialty or each character who needs it a robotic specialty. Or you would want to provide, in the spirit of Traveler, uh, benefits from combining two disparate skills, such like the old uh, World of Darkness used to do, where it would be you add your wits and your manipulation, and that's how you can, uh, you know, f uh, solve uh, psychological profiling, right? And right. so with the uh, tiny, robust skill set of Traveler, you'd say, okay, adding robotics to piloting, what does that special power give you if you have both of those at a certain level? Uh, robot plus guns, what does that give you? What And so I think that is maybe a better way within the, the space of Traveler rather than come up with a 90, uh, you know, or 10 or a dozen robot skills. 
provide ways that the robotic skill inflects all the other ones, because that's also going to drive story, I think. Right. And I've been specifically saying whatever rule set you're using with Traveler so that we don't go down the right. rabbit yeah, hole. You make, but you make a fair point that, that one of you out there playing D20 Traveler can now rest comfortably. Right. So <laughs> wh- whatever it is, you would have as part of your campaign frame, the special crunchy bits that allow the players to interact with the correctivity of the campaign frame in a more specific way. Uh, whatever that would be for whatever rule set you're using. And then finally, you have basically an outline of where uh, the story might go. And this, this can be uh, tight or loose, depending on how sandboxy you want the uh, series to be, or how uh, the subgenre itself may imply a certain... Uh, way that the the game has to go. So uh, a Dracula dossier uh, campaign frame, whatever it is, has to suggest in one way or another, uh, probably there's a climax in which the characters encounter Dracula. Um, otherwise, you know, you've you've tantalized them with the, with the big D for nothing. Um, and other games uh, don't necessarily imply anything about where it would be. You know, an, an exploration game, your section on stuff that could happen in the game wouldn't be a sort of an outline of a particular series of events, but just a list of cool things that will happen if the players choose to pull particular levers that they encounter as they explore the sandbox world. Are there other components that you can think of that a campaign frame either has to have or uh, can sometimes benefit from having, depending on what it is? I think a campaign frame often can uh, benefit from having special monsters or special adversaries that fit the theme of that campaign. So that, uh, for example, in your exploratory F20 game, you might want to have special kinds of creatures that screw with the map or special kinds of creatures that um, uh, guard pathways or that um, are living up in passes or on the, or on the highest mountains or at the sources of rivers. So that when you explore, you have a sense that I'm having special kinds of encounters in bookhounds of London. For example, we have uh, the dust thing that lives inside books and takes on the personality of the book that it's been haunting. And if it's been haunting a magic book, Oh, that's a terrible, terrible fate for you. And then similarly, even in, within uh, Dracula dossier, uh, we have advice in They Saved Hitler's Blood for how to build uh, good airport thriller Nazi uh, villains. And the specific way that you construct them is kind of different from the way that you construct other villains so that you know that when you've been fighting the um, uh, uh, copy of um, uh, Herr Tot from Raiders of the Lost Ark, you, you sort of you sort of feel it. You, you know that um, he's been a different kind of a bad guy than the bad guys in Nice Black Agents tend to be normally. And I think that that helps as well to give the individual encounters and remind you that those individual encounters should feel like they're part of that campaign frame. Because if you've uh, gone to all the trouble of coming up with a, a really great campaign frame for your F20 game, and they're still fighting orcs and kobolds and goblins and bugbears, it's like, well, I'm not really sure why I bothered to come up with all this other foo-for-ah because we're having the same, not necessarily the same core activity as you put it, but we're certainly having the same quotidian day-to-day activity. And that's a thing. Right. The creatures are basically a meeting point between the style notes that suggest to the GM how they're going to convey uh, how the feel of this game is different than a standard run of this game. Uh, plus the crunchy bits. So, uh, you know, your description of how to do the uh, 
Nazis in an airport thriller that's not necessarily mechanically hugely different, but it is uh, welding uh, the feeling of what the the villains are going to be with whatever rules you need to support that and whatever uh, rule book you're uh, using. And so to get back to you doing my homework for me, uh, one of the things obviously that the uh, Esoterrorist campaign frame, which will be about you know getting a hold of Dracula unredacted, and you know it's a hoax at first, but then more and more every day you're seeing evidence that this hoax is becoming real, You, I will need to create some sort of uh, creature or group of outer darkness entities that facilitate that and make that happen. And they're, uh, you know, all working to become, uh, you know, they go from being outer darkness entities to uh, Draculas to competing to be the Dracula. And that will be the, you know, you want to get them and eliminate them before they all, uh, the gestalt dracula arises and becomes as as powerful the as full-on dracula tulpa exactly have we left any bits of seed corn on the floor or have we pretty much uh, covered this one i, I think that in turn i mean the thing about a campaign frame is that if you overbuild it you haven't built a campaign frame anymore you've almost either you've either built out a setting which is kind of its own sort of uh bail uh bail or You've um, just written a whole freaking, you know, splat book or expansion or something that has a whole lot of, uh, of of tendrils and things going off it. And so I think that as you and, and I guess a, a campaign frame can begin as a campaign frame and then blow up to become, you know, something larger. But even in Bookhounds of London, if you look at that book, the campaign frame itself is still relatively compact. It's just nestled in that long, beautiful description of London. Um, so the interaction between campaign frames and settings is perhaps a uh, topic for another hut. And you just said the words other hut, so let's go to another hut. It's time again for Among My Many Hats the segment in which the covert self-promotion of this entire podcast narrows down into very specific acknowledged self-promotion of a segment in which we talk about one of our upcoming projects. And no upcoming project gets more attention on this podcast due to its monthly nature than Ken Writes About Stuff, the um, monthly PDF subscription in which you can get all manner of Ken Height uh, goodness from Palgrain Press. And uh, fully 50% of that, I think, is that correct, uh, is devoted to uh, Ken's examination of uh, various uh, Cthulhu creatures? Yeah, um, we try, or we try, I try every other month to do a uh, Lovecraftian hideous creature in the Hideous Creatures series, and the goal being to look at them from all kinds of different angles in the same sort of way that the Gods and Titans chapter in the core book looks at the various uh, Gods and Titans from all different angles. So that um, and Lovecraft presented his monsters because he thought that ghosts and vampires and werewolves were all sort of played out and everyone knew what they were and they weren't scary and weird anymore. In this case, they were insufficiently conical. And in this particular case... Um, Yes. Uh, he then, uh, over explains the great race of Yith to such an extent in Shadow Out of Time that it's very hard to find new takes on it. But that's the goal of Hideous Creatures is to at least present, even if I don't, you know, give you 
a different sort of great race of Yith, although I do because there are stats for the Hardy Coleopter and great races of Yith from the future. But uh, things that you might not have thought of as you looked at the great race of Yith because Lovecraft's story is so powerful that it distracts you from all the other weird crap Lovecraft made up about the great race. Right. And just as there are no cynical listeners to this podcast, surely there are no listeners to this podcast who need to have the great race of Yith explained to them, but perhaps some of them haven't had their coffee yet or are uh, fuzzy on the details. So, uh, or have had their minds blanked by some sort of conical beast from the Jurassic. Yes. We don't always cover on the podcast each and every uh, installment of Hideous Creatures, but I thought that the great race of Yeth is sort of interesting because of the Lovecraft creatures, they are somewhat less sinister and more interactive. Uh, and so, uh, but before we <laughs> this, get to all this, of that... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. They seem pretty damn sinister to me. Let us uh, bank that question for a few minutes from now. Mm-hmm. But why don't you give people a quick uh, rundown on the Shadow Out of Time, which is the story in which they appear, so that uh, memories uh, will be refreshed, and then we can move on to uh, such epistemological questions as uh, how sinister the Ithians are. Right. Okay. In the great race, in the shadow out of time, um, the main character, uh, Peasley, uh, loses his memory, uh, comes down with amnesia in the middle of a political economy lecture at Miskatonic University. As one does. As you do. Um, but th- in this case, he's the lecturer. And so that's a little more unusual. He stands out. <laughs> yes. He uh, begins to sort of act weird and different, uh, almost as though he's unfamiliar with how his body works. Uh, uses crazy slang from the future and the, from the past as though he's not quite sure what year it is. And then he begins to sort of travel around to weird occult archives and strange locations and go to distant, uh, lands and do s- sort of archaeological occult expeditions. And then six years later, he just all of a sudden snaps back into his old self. Uh, coming right back to life in the midst of giving the political economy lecture that was interrupted so very long ago. And uh, people say, wow, that was a crazy case of amnesia. Good thing you're back, uh, Peasley. But on the other hand, you know, you've been out acting weird, so we don't really have a job for you, which he's cool with. He uh, retires um, and begins to become obsessed with the occasional dreams that he has in which he is living in the Jurassic era in the body of a giant cone, moving around, uh, writing down everything he knows about uh, the 20th century in a giant library of stone over some empty pits. Uh, come to find out, as you do, that certain hints in the Necronomicon and the Pneicotic manuscripts refer back to these horrible things, and that this case of amnesia is not isolated. There have been other weirdly similar cases of amnesia stretching as far back as human records will go, including records of what seemed at the time like demonic possession or prophecy. But when Peasley puts them all together, he, over a perhaps excessive length of time, figures out that he was in fact mind-swapped by these aliens known as the great race of Yith that live in the deep past. And he um, uh, goes to Australia because he's been publishing all of his findings in the American Psychological Association Journal. And someone recognizes the uh, alphabet of the great race that he reproduces in one of his papers as being on carvings in stone blocks in the Australian desert. He goes out there to dig up those stone blocks and discovers, ta-da, the dream diary that he was keeping while he was there in the past. Uh, in his own handwriting, as Lovecraft assures us, despite the fact that I suspect your handwriting would change if you were in a 10-foot-tall cone body and writing with uh, lobster claws instead of 
monkey hands. So once and more, is, and is this a, a uh, on paper? Isn't this like on a, a cyclopean? It, it's on an uh, uh, a sort of an imperishable stone page. So the yes. books are made of stone, but it's like super See, forget thin. Forget all stone. that other stuff. My handwriting changes whenever I'm chipping into an imperishable stone page. Well, you're writing with a stylus, though. It's because well. it's Yithian stylus technology. It's very good because they have to train everyone to use it and make sure they keep their own handwriting. You spend one year writing things down and six years learning penmanship. That's exactly, how the Yithian yeah. curriculum uh, goes. So the the <laughs> horror of the uh, of the Yithians is one of psychic displacement of uh, discovering that uh, history is more vast than you want it to be and has weirder things in it than you want to exist, and that you're not alone as a sentient being, and that uh, your consciousness uh, can easily be hijacked. But that's a, a less visceral horror than like having a Shoggoth run after you or, uh, you know, a, a confrontation with star vampires. So how, um, given that having one character possessed is useful if that player is gone that week, but otherwise uh, <laughs> perhaps it's because that player is, is absent, the uh, horror of having your uh, consciousness stolen is, is uh, perhaps not center stage in the game. How do you suggest using the great yith in uh, Cthulhu scenarios that are not uh, basically remakes of Shadow of Time. Uh, the obvious uh, thing to do is to have an NPC villain who is a Yithian in the present, right? That, that the Yithians have stolen the mind of someone that the player characters either meet in the course of the scenario or perhaps already knew. Maybe it's a trusted uh, NPC. Maybe it's a family member or something, because that's another sort of indication is that if your family members have weird periods of amnesia, that's the Yithians fishing through your bloodline to find you. So it doesn't even have to be a, a full-on six-year possession, although that is more fun because then the guy has had six years to build his weird science fictional empire there in the 1930s. Um, uh, and, of course, the Yithians have their their human uh, lackeys who do their bidding in the present in exchange for secrets about necotic mysteries and access to weird Yithian technology. So you have a really good uh, pulpy electrotech uh, bad guy set just waiting for you in the in the Ithian cult. And then the Ithian GMC, of course, can have all manner of crazy powers because he's not a, actually a human. He's got uh, a Ithian superior mind in him. And so uh, the Ithian superior mind can, you know, sense the flow of time maybe. And so his preparedness pool is gigantic. And so when you shoot at him, he just wasn't there because he knew you were going to shoot at him. Or Ithians, of course, can memorize. And so... He just knows everything that he's ever read, which means he's basically a guy in 1935 with a smartphone with uh, Wikipedia on it. So he always knows everything and is never uh, caught out by a sudden discovery. And so he, he makes a really good um, Lovecraftian Superman while still not actually necessarily being as big a physical threat as a Shoggoth. So it has to work through tech and his uh, little cult, which makes it kind of a, a fun change-up uh, monster challenge. And uh, you could also, as a player, have as your backstory that, you know, a you are a recovering uh, victim of Yithian mind possession. Absolutely, yeah. That, that's one of your sudden shock uh, drives. And so that could, uh, you know, have uh, give you reason to be your kind of eccentric scientist, or, you know, maybe you're not a scientist. Maybe you're a... Uh, a garage mechanic and you're trying to figure out what the heck it is that the Yithians wanted with you or you were briefly possessed by them and then they went on to possess your wife and your wife is missing and now you need to find her because you were the uh, the slight mistake in the uh, 
targeting a quantum mind stealer mm-hmm. and uh you know now your uh your wife has vanished and was last seen in mongolia and that's your um, reason for getting involved in the uh, plot line um you mentioned the other uh lovecraftian beings that are uh attached to the yith story because they uh you know we're not the first the last sapients uh in lovecraft's great cosmic history they're sort of calypturian uh insect people uh, that they later uh, go on to occupy, who uh, follow up in our footsteps. So how do you bring those into a game? Um, I think you bring those into a game either by having your characters have a vision of the future, right? They go to the future, uh, possibly through a, a time gate, possibly through the, taking the, the Liao or one of the other uh, time traveling drugs that they use, that you use, maybe a magical vision. And then you can interact with the hardy coleopteran yith um, who are there doing their own thing, or you might imply that there is a faction of the future Yith who are sending their minds backward to try and undo some screw-up that will doom the Hardy Coleoptera and Yith early. And they're coming back in the same sort of way that the Jurassic Yithians are going forward, but maybe the two groups are acting at cross-purposes. You could develop a whole sort of a weird multiple-personality or schizophrenic time war story because uh, the Ithians are described by Lovecraft as uh, having a sort of fascistic socialism, which I think will provide any creative keeper with all manner of ideas for why they might squabble amongst themselves. More fascist, more socialist. Yes. <laughs> and the... Um, uh, and, and so that's where you might have the, the, the beetle yith that, that send their, their, their minds into the back. Or, uh, you can just keep the yith as a Lovecraftian monolithic, uh, species and just have to deal with the, uh, coleopterans whenever you're in the future. Or perhaps they can activate, uh, earth beetles and turn them into a semblance of their, um, uh, hive self, uh, when they're in the present, uh, using their, their yithian technology because they know how the beetles will eventually become this, um, uh, this this hive creature and they can act they can sort of advance their evolution with a ray which is good 1930s sf right and because the yithians can possess people and possibly have uh you know their agenda is not bringing about the imminent apocalypse that would be bad for them if the stars no, are fleeing and, several apocalypses yes, apocalypses <laughs> and so uh you could have uh them uh you know a possessed yithian as the patron for the uh, investigators in a campaign, which is always my favorite thing to do, is to have an ambiguous, powerful figure whose agenda does not completely align with theirs, but is willing to uh, use them and to be used by them uh, to the degree they consider is necessary. uh, And that has that great dynamic where the players have to decide, oh, well, we could go to... uh, Bob Jenkins, who we know is possessed by a Yithian and, and knows the entire history of the 20th century and get the answer to this question. Or we could, you know, go into Manchuria, in, into a war zone to get the answer. Both of those have their drawbacks. Which do we do? Because, you know, it's less dangerous to just go and ask Bob Jenkins, but Bob Jenkins will then ask us to do something. What do, what do we do? And I, I love that. Uh, dynamic in a, in a game, as my players will, will well attest. And so you can have a half-sympathetic, non-hostile Yithian character or characters interact uh, with the players and, and creep them out in that way. You don't always have to 
use neural affotep for that. Right. And, and the other thing is, uh, the, the Ithian in the present can, can come to them and ask them for help and promise them something. It's not even a thing where they. Well, that's always to... Bob Jenkins' first move. You know, the, the, the first favor is free. Yeah, the first, the first hit is free from Bob. Um, yeah. And so I, th- I think that the, uh, the presence of the Ithian in the, in the present is, is a great tactic to use and it is great fun. Um, and in that sense, yes, uh, they are perhaps more ambiguous than if, say, a Shoggoth is coming up to you. Um, by and large, you're not going to help the Shoggoth because it seems very creepy and wrong. It, its plans are pretty um, elemental. Yes. Um, another thing you could do is a, you could do a theosophy thing where you are, uh, you know, coming into contact with a, a theosophical movement in, as it exists in the 20s and 30s and then discovering that the secret masters are, of course, all people who are possessed by Ithians. That's where, where all of that mythology comes from. And uh, you can work your way through that uh, conspiracy as the uh, various secret masters who uh, you know are either competing with each other to prevent something from happening in history, as you suggested earlier, or perhaps they're deciding that, you know, they've recalculated and uh, the best they've got, uh, the stars are about to align and they've got to take over the world in order to uh, set up their uh, new... Uh, socialist fascist empire to be the most efficient way of uh, fighting the old ones when they uh, come pouring through the gate. And so uh, once again, you you don't want them to take over the world either. But, you know, given the choice between letting the secret theosophical race of Yith take over the world and keep uh, Cthulhu and Yogg-Sothoth away for another eon, what do you do? You know, maybe maybe in the uh, in the short run, you take that hit, and then, uh, you know, as you work alongside them, you are trying to uh, plot the seeds of uh, their downfall after they've uh, beaten the big C for you. Right. And that can add some uh, a, a sort of a, a parallel with the decision that a lot of real people made in the 1930s, where they're like, well, we know the catastrophe's coming. Do we want to be with Hitler or with Stalin? And, um, you know, there are people now who would say, well, I'm pretty sure there was a third choice, but at the time... <laughs> It didn't, it didn't seem that way. And so you can be in that position where it's like, well, the Ithians are fascist socialists, as, as we say. So they're, they're like, don't worry. 45% of your, of, of, of this globe is already under uh, fascist socialist control. It will take but moments for us to turn it into the new Yith. Uh, we just have to finish these continents and then we're, and then we're good. And you're like, all right, I, I see what we're talking about because you have to have a good dramatic outburst of, 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 uh, of Cthulhu forces or flying polyps or something to remind the players what the stakes are. And then as they work with the Yith, they can be meeting people who are working with Hitler or working with Stalin and are like, Hey, welcome to the team. Good for you. And it's like, Oh, now I really hate myself and the world. And bang, there you go. Lovecraft. Right. And that, uh, to tie it into our previous segment, would be a campaign frame. If you want to have your geopolitical uh, Trail of Cthulhu campaign, that's that's the way to do it. And uh, uh, you use the Yithians as your main uh, bad guys, and you flesh them out a bit for your uh, purposes. And uh, uh, that gives you a uh, situation where you're still playing Cthulhu and you're still investigating things, but it's within the wrapper of the uh, great uh, Yithian real politique. And I think... Uh, once uh, our previous segments start to fold in upon one another, it's time to uh, flee, escape their entanglement, and move to yet another segment.
the chuttering of IBM Selectric Keys, the gurgling of good American bourbon, and the hissing of the self-appointed guardians of literature tell us we've entered once more the friendly confines where we learn how to write good. And here in the How to Write Good uh, office, uh, Robin, you are looking at... Uh, it's, uh, I'm told fictional worldviews, which I take it are different from the worldview of the author producing the fiction, or are they? Um, I think there's, uh, usually a, uh, if the author is intentionally operating their, their worldview through their fiction, probably in most uh, cases that the uh, worldview is either going to uh, align with theirs or be compatible with theirs in some way. But to take a, a step backwards, uh, a fictional worldview is uh, something that determines what it is that does and doesn't happen when you are plotting your uh, short story or novel or screenplay. Um, and so uh, it's basically the uh, world uh, and how it works and how you present it to the uh, audience, and the audience uh, will uh, respond to events in your storyline given uh, the expectations that they bring to it, the worldview that they want your story to have, and the worldview that you want to present them with. And sometimes uh, that creates an interesting tension. So I thought that I would uh, describe a few uh, fictional worldviews that you'll often see, um, so that even if you're not a writer, you might be able to sort of uh, use these tools to understand what various creators are trying uh, to do, and uh, kind of move from there and explore uh, how you can be in control of these things and make them sharper. So particularly with what we do, but I think more generally in the culture, most popular narrative, particularly in film, these days is aspirational and through most of film history as we know it has been aspirational and what that means is that uh, very simply it is creating to one degree or another a fantasy situation and i don't mean fantasy with uh, orcs and dwarves but fantasy in the terms of what uh, viewers want to have happen and then uh, it offers the possibility of that happening and then delivering on it so pretty much uh, any uh, procedural uh, narrative is almost always going to be uh, aspirational in some way. You want Superman to succeed. You want Sherlock Holmes to be the smartest guy. You want to identify with Tom Cruise's character as he uh, outwits the bad guys and so forth and, and so on. And it's not uh, particularly common in uh, serious literature, but it's certainly also very common in uh, series fiction and more entertainment-oriented writing. And so if you are creating a sense of aspirational expectations, the audience is going to critique you if you don't deliver on them. And because people so want uh, to get happy endings and have good things happen to the characters that they identify with, even if you choose not to do something aspirational, you may, in fact, find that uh, your audience uh, rebels against that. So you should be aware that's going to happen if you're using a different mode and use that to your advantage. So that is uh, something that, uh, you know, for example, uh, if you have a, a socially progressive agenda, you probably want your fiction, particularly your pop fiction, to be aspirational and to give agency and empowerment to the uh, groups and people who you feel that it's been deprived of, and you will critique 
uh, works based on whether they succeed in, in delivering that or not. And that's uh, fine to the extent that things are meant to be aspirational. But, of course, not everything is. Can you agree with my thesis that uh, although aspiration has always been a huge part of pop culture, that it's particularly ascendant uh, now in the age of the superhero movie? I, I think that uh, the aspirational hero, because it is such an absolutely uh, standard, t- and I think that when you say, you know, if you're writing socially progressive fiction, you want it to be aspirationalist, obviously the aspirational hero is considerably older than progressivism, much less progressive fiction. And you can, I mean, Kim is an aspirational hero and he's an imperialist for goodness sake. Yeah. Um, uh, there's plenty of, uh, you know, Horatio Alger, of course, creates the great capitalist aspirational hero, uh, Dickens, uh, his characters are aspirational, um, and uh, varyingly progressive depending on your opinion of Dickens. Yeah. The, the structure can be plugged into any ideology, uh, that it assumes the reader shares with the uh, writer. And I think that what is driving the aspirational quality of pop fiction now is not necessarily the rise of the superhero qua superhero, but it's the fact that writing for an audience that also derives a larger than ever chunk of its narrative through simpler, less um, uh, uh, nuanced media uh, like film and TV. And so, you know, you, you can't do war and peace Right. You can't do crime and punishment very easily in a, uh, a movie at all. And you could barely do it in a TV show, but no one would watch it because it would be horribly um, uh, off putting to be in Raskolnikov's head visually that way. I mean, every now and again, you get a Breaking Bad, but for every Breaking Bad, there's a million other shows that aren't. Um, and so the uh, and so I think that the sort of presumption of narrative, which is that it's to make you feel good about yourself, has drifted so much that our fiction responses to our world, which include those uh, televised and visual narratives becomes more like that partially out of evolutionary pressure part, partly just because that's what the market has demanded. And partly just because I think people in sort of uh weird unsettling times like Dickensian England want to have aspirational fiction that they can cling to and say, well, I don't care how bad things are here in um, uh, Brooklyn or wherever. Um, I know that if I, you know, uh, keep living the way that I already want to live, I can be just like this hero or heroine of the fiction that I am enjoying reading. And so I think that part of it is, is times and part of it is other media and, you know, superheroes, I, th- I think it's cart before the horse to say that superheroes are driving aspirationalism. I think a appetite for aspirationalism is driving superheroes. Right. And, and I think that's true too. Um, and part of it, I think is the, uh, the times and part of it is kind of this trend of uh, what's called adulthood, where uh, people who grew, grew, <laughs> grow up uh, don't uh, put aside childish things anymore and instead stick to the uh, things that they love when they were 10 or 11 or 12, sometimes wanting them to morph into other uh, forms that they're, uh, 10, 11, or 12-year-old selves wouldn't like or, or recognize. Which but is, I mean, again, another another quality of uh, very rich uh, societies. Uh, Rome had that sort of uh, adulthood to the extent we know anything about their fiction. We know that there's a, a good deal of sort of detourning uh, sort of the more um, simple stories for adult ends, if you will. And similarly, the Victorians, of course, were huge fans of of children's fiction that could be read by adults profitably. Um, you know, Peter Pan, for example, you know, he didn't sell all those tickets to kids. It sold them all to adults. Um, so there's a, there's a strong 
kidulthood quality, I think, in any rich society, and certainly ours being both more rich and more inclined to cater to individual taste than either Rome or Victorian Britain is just going to produce that in spades. Right. And you mentioned the the tough or challenging times uh, tend to produce an appetite for aspiration, but uh, it might also be the other round in, in that comfortable times uh, make us expect more gratification. And the, one uh, example of that would be the impact of the wake of the Vietnam War and Watergate had on 70s cinema, where uh, suddenly uh, that uh, became a, a series of different, uh, more troubling, challenging worldviews that it presented us with. And I thought we could run through some of those now. So uh, one of the uh, contrasts to aspirational fiction is fatalistic fiction, in which you follow the uh, downward spiral of the character or their failure to uh, overcome the challenges that they are faced in the as they discover that the uh, universe is much more hostile to them than they initially assumed, or in which their uh, already uh, fatalistic worldview is uh, confirmed. So things that spiral down toward a difficult ending um, may bespeak a sense of, of fatalism, um, and in some traditions that also has an overlay of romanticism on top of them so that, uh, you know, in uh, La Boheme, you, you know uh, that uh, the character is going to die of consumption, but it's about uh, feeling that feeling and a lot of... Uh, it's, it's all about the journey. Right. And uh, uh, in Asian cinema, for example, as well, that there is a, uh, a huge uh, appetite for fatalism, which I think probably reflects uh, the experience of growing up having Chinese history uh, being uh, your history rather than, for example, uh, American or even Canadian history as your uh, watchword for what can happen to you and what events uh, occur in your life that you have to come into contact with. So you may be presenting something that is either very tough or is somehow suffused with a sort of a redeeming melancholy, but you may be telling a story that is about uh, the inevitability of uh, failure, because of course, eventually all of us fail to continue living, and uh, we need to uh, come to terms with uh, the dark side of the world, as well as the uh, the side where you get to imagine that you win and get all the goodies at the end. And so, a, a fatalistic worldview may be one in which you, as the writer, move the plot uh, toward uh, a confrontation with entropy and uh, disaster. And that is the point of having a storyline that ends uh, poorly. Another uh, example, though, of a, a worldview in which things go badly for the character is the cautionary story in which you are being presented with a series of events that goes very badly, but order is restored at the end. And it is sort of a, a lesson in what not to do and what to avoid. And a lot of these Shakespearean tragedies, and I haven't used tragic as one of my definitional names because that's a whole other kind of more specific kettle of fish, but uh, Macbeth is a story of uh, misrule. And that uh, Othello is a story of, uh, you know, a hero brought low by his uh, fatal flaw, his homartia. So, uh, and uh, a lot of horror stories work this way as well, where the uh, character is not just destroyed by the implacability of the universe, but by a fundamental mistake they have made, whether that's a mistake to uh, pry into uh, 
information that they shouldn't have, discovering things that man was not meant to know, or some other flaw that leads them to be uh, destroyed uh, by uh, the monsters. And that's also a very uh, common frame. It's a kind of a didactic frame, and it's one that makes the uh, viewer uh, feel uh, good and right, because we have seen this character who expected to be destroyed, destroyed, and then order restored with their passing. Now, so your differentiation is, is the character destroyed, but society survives in the cautionary tale. In the fatalist tale, the character and society are both destroyed? Uh, or is the fatalist society is tale... not necessarily destroyed, but the character is not destroyed because they made a terrible mistake. They're just they, destroyed because that's destroyed the way things go. because that's life. Yeah. Um, and... And that's, I think, the distinction. Now, do you have, um, uh, for example, one can imagine an awful lot of aspirational fiction that is also cautionary, right? That if it weren't for Batman, everything would have gone to hell type stories. Uh, you know, and you can even argue that, uh, for example, the, um, there, there are stories in which because, uh, uh, Batman makes a mistake or because James Bond makes a mistake early on, that's what gives the bad guys their, their entry. And then his fixing it, uh, and re- returning to his iconic ethos, if you will, uh, and being his own best self, his aspirational best self is what saves the day at the end. So the caution, uh, is there, but also the aspiration. Do you think that that's uh, a valid thing or do you think they'll tend to turn into one or the other by gravity? There can certainly and often is certainly didactic intent within the aspirational story. But I think the distinction here is that the uh, the role of the lead character is are they solving the problem or are they the problem? And that's the difference between aspiration right. and cautionary. So okay. uh, a Batman story told from the point of view of the Joker could well be a cautionary uh, story. Um, another worldview that you might decide to uh, present is the one that you'll find in uh, a lot of, though not necessarily all, of literary fiction, where it's essentially realist, that the goal of the writer is to say, this is what life is actually like, and what is going to happen in this story are the sorts of things that would really happen or have really happened to me and people I know. And uh, the object of the resolution of the story is not to uh, warn you, or to uh, make you feel good about entropy or to make you feel good about winning, but simply to present life as it is. And so the challenge there is to make sure that your mimesis, your uh, copying of uh, reality, that everything that happens in your realistic story uh, is very plausible. And this can be political or apolitical. It can be a personal uh, story that is just this is what life is like for these people. Or it can be a social realist story in which you are uh, the characters that you're focusing on don't necessarily have agency. They don't necessarily get to uh, win, but you're showing what the social problem is and how it feels to be uh, in that problem. So the, the purpose of realist fiction is to the extent that the author succeeds or fails is to be descriptive and that the plotting is descriptive and representative of uh, either life in general or of the very specific experiences of, of the characters. Although, again, you can say Dickens is writing aspirational realism, George Gissing is writing fatalist realism, and say uh, Middlemarch is cautionary realism, right? They're all realist in the sense that you mean. They're all intending to write life as it is lived, not uh, with crazy romantic elements or, or fantasy elements. Um, I, w- I would certainly not. Well, as soon as you introduce a crazy romantic element, 
I think that you are, I mean, and certainly all of these things could be hybridized, yeah. but if you're, uh, I, I would not describe uh, Dickens in particular. He had social themes and there's a, a uh, social message in his uh, uh, fiction and it's not always aspirational. Sometimes it's quite tragic, yeah. but uh, realistic uh, is not necessarily something that I would uh, describe of Dickens plotting particularly. And I think for these worldviews uh, that what we're really looking at is what happens in the story and uh, how does it uh, come out and what sort of events occur. And so uh, there are, uh, like anything, any cat set of categories is uh, fungible and you can mix and match them. But for the purpose as a writer of knowing what your own worldview is and what you're trying to do, the answer to, you know, what happens at the end of Oliver Twist is very different if you're writing an aspirational version of Oliver Twist versus a truly social realist version of Oliver Twist. But the end of, you know, New Grub Street is basically the same, whether you're being overtly fatalist or realist, right? I mean, I think that realism is less of a worldview because unless you are overtly writing um, and let, let's agree to, uh, that Dickens is, is a romance and not actually realism. I'm perfectly happy to, to accept that caveat, but there are plenty of realist authors, um, who are also engaging in, uh, fatalism, cautionary tales, um, contingency, any of these other sorts of worldviews that you're describing. I think realism is a, you know, a, a genre or perhaps a set of, um, of choices that you make that describe that the sort of um delimit the stories you can tell as opposed to saying this is uh it, it may be a goal of the story but if the plot goes anywhere it almost has to wind up going one of those other directions um i have it here because uh the first question you ask yourself can be different and right. it may be that there are different levels of questions you're asking yourself and that you're trying to harmonize it with different things. Obviously, there's a lot of pressure on you to come up with some sort of happy or hopeful ending, even for a realist document, just so that people read it. And but also, we, there's plenty of realistic happy endings. I mean, you and I are both pretty much right. living that, right? Right. I'm not arguing that realism <laughs> is always dark. Yeah. What I'm arguing is that you as a writer, your first question can be, what would really happen? Or what did happen to the actual real life events that I'm thinly fictionalizing? Mm -hmm. um, and so the, uh, your desire, if your impulse is predominantly to say, this is what life is like, is, uh, different if you are, uh, in a sense, you're not locking yourself into a happy or a sad ending that it's different every time that when you sit down and say, how, wh what is the version of this story that explains life? that portrays life uh, as we live it uh, can be different in each case. And that's why you're able to get those overlays. Although some... if you're H.P. Lovecraft, it turns out that's always fatalist. Right. Yes. And that, <laughs> and that's uh, quite commonly the case that a, uh, you know, or Richard Yates could be another example of that or uh, uh, Philip Roth that, you know, the, that's where the writer's worldview, their feeling of how life is, is inseparable from their desire to portray life. Mm -hmm. um, another uh, worldview is sort of the anti-worldview, the anti-teleological uh, story in which things uh, happen uh, the way they do in life with no particular organization. And you could argue that this is uh, realist in intent, but I think the anti-teleological worldview is one that goes out of its way to whack you on the head with the fact that your expectations of how stories come out and the way that stories really, uh, that, that 
real life stories come out are often quite at odds. And for example, uh, Game of Thrones uh, is very explicitly working as an anti-teleological revisionist fantasy. And that's why uh, people uh, get so frustrated with the TV show, particularly in this last season where it was handled less than adroitly, or where you're continually hitting up against Martin saying to you, no, no, this is how it would really go. And uh, that the uh, heroic and the noble people get ground into meat and the uh, calculating psychopaths often get to uh, get to win. And that if you look at real history, it's a series of uh, sudden atrocities uh, bursting forth and, and destroying you. And uh, life is uh, the meaning of life is often that there is no meaning to the way uh, people uh, treat each other and you can get hit with a truck at any time. So a story in which a character really can get hit uh, with a truck at any time is very much anti-teleological. And since we hate that so much, and for many people, the whole purpose of fiction is to have a writer organize life for them so it is uh, organized in a way that real life is not, is why there is so much uh, resistance to an anti-teleological uh, story and why watching the reactions to that can be uh, very interesting. And also because, in a sense, we have the implication, going back to Aristotle again, that an anti-telos is literally the opposite of what you're supposed to do. I mean, you sort of alluded to that earlier, but if plot is a third of what is happening, um, plot implies a telos, right? It, it has to. And so a literally anti-teleological story is not a story and... It's not just, you know, sort of a coddled modern sensibility that rebels against it. It's the narrative heritage of humanity that rebels against it. Because it's not like, you know, the Chinese never put endings on stories and it's just our crazy Western parochialism. No, pretty much everyone puts endings on stories. That's how stories work. Right. And, and an anti-teleological uh, story can have an ending. It just might or might not be the ending that you uh, want it to be. And a lesser version of that, and, and this is the final thing on my list of different worldviews, is the contingent story where uh, some things in the plot just happen. Uh, so there's some level of randomness to events. Uh, and so the difference is uh, often in just what you choose to set up ahead of time, right? So that if, the, if there's a plot turn where a character has a piano dropped on her and uh, is crushed... Uh, if you establish at the beginning of the story before the piano drops that there are guys struggling with the piano and there's a reason why that morning they didn't bother to check the ropes and then you have the character coming toward them and then the piano falls, that is a uh, non-contingent story in that there's something, there's just sort of a random confluence in terms of she's the one under the piano. But you as a writer have given the, uh, the reader or viewer the expectation that that is going to happen. Whereas you just, you know, if you have a romantic comedy and then all of a sudden a piano out of nowhere comes and falls on the character with no warning, that suddenly is saying, again, something about the way the universe operates. And it may just be, you know, an example of sort of conditional anti-teleology where something random and contingent just suddenly happens and then you go back to uh, the rest of the story then regroups around that. But it's uh, there are things, that, uh, examples like the Johnny Tote film PTU, which is sort of all about chance occurrences and how they uh, throw people's uh, lives uh, a kilter. And he quite frequently uh, has a contingent narrative where just, you know, once a fight starts, who knows what can happen and things go crazy. And a lot of role-playing narratives 
are, are essentially contingent because we are using random processes to determine uh, what happens. So if you were to write up your really cool campaign uh, and you have a system that uses any uh, sort of randomness, which almost every single one of them does, uh, you would then be writing to one extent or another a contingent narrative, which is basically, you know, life seems kind of organized and in retrospect, it seems to be a series of events. But some of those series of events do not spring from the one central premise that drove the story in the first place, but come in and assault it at random, sometimes like, uh, you know, uh, meteor strike suddenly hitting. So given these uh, multiple uh, worldviews overlap or not, as they may, um, do you have any advice to the new writer to maybe start with one of the uh, more straightforward ones, perhaps your aspirational or your cautionary, and then work your way up to the more complex ones or the ones that if you do them badly default to uh, mush like realist or anti-teleological? I, I would not discourage people from being ambitious, certainly. No. Um, and uh, that they're, uh, what I'm, I guess, suggesting is just that like so much in writing. Your advice is aspirational, not fatalist. Well, writing is a fatalistic activity and almost, yes. uh, well, everything you know, is a almost fatalistic everything activity. that we write will be forgotten and there'll be one or two people from any given era who will be remembered later. Almost everything sucks, but you can't uh, let that stop you from trying. So um, uh, what I guess I'm suggesting is this, that you be aware of what worldview you are uh, working within, because, for example, moments can seem uh, weird or off if you're uh, switching up between the two. Uh, if you're writing an essentially uh, realist story that then cops out at the end and suddenly it becomes uh, aspirational and they have a happy ending and you slap a sappy conclusion on it that doesn't agree with the rest of the story, uh, or you know that you uh, allow some of the characters in your anti-teleological story to be aspirational and some of them to illustrate your anti-teleological uh, worldview, or uh, that you suddenly have something happen in your aspirational story that just comes out of nowhere because it's convenient to make things happen rather than being an exploration of contingency, that you uh, ask yourself uh, what question you are posing about existence by sitting down to write that story, uh, which sounds uh, highfalutin, but it can keep you on track as you are plotting and as you are deciding uh, what can happen. And so uh, within plotting, one of the major wrong notes you can strike is to have an event occur that clashes with the worldview of the rest of the piece. So if, uh, you know, if Dead Ringers suddenly had a happy ending, uh, that would uh, seem peculiar and weird. Or if someone tries to impose a happy ending on your fatalistic or uh, a realistic piece, you have a way of defending yourself from, from that and explaining why you can't just you know, take a chunk from the other worldview and glue it onto this and have people like it. Well, um, uh, given that we either dive deep into philosophy or go far out into examples, we must be done with this segment of How to Write Good. Yes, the threat of philosophy must be averted. Be 
clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tells us that we're once more in proximity to Ken's time machine. That, of course, is the vehicle that Time Incorporated puts Ken in when it wants him to go back into history and bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time, Rich Fryer has sent a request to Time Incorporated, and it goes something like this. Given the timings of the U.S. claiming California and the discovery of gold, what horrific alternative were you attempting to prevent? And why was it so difficult to stop? So, Ken, this is one of those uh, Ken's Time Machine segments that's uh, not telling us what you might do, but what you've already done to make the time stream that we're familiar with, the time stream that we're living in. So, Ken, uh, what did you do in and around the California Gold Rush? Basically, I simply made sure that when uh, Fremont took over California in 1846, uh, that the... Uh, Mexican authorities were disinterested in putting up much of a fight. So lay, lay the scene for us. Uh, okay. Who was Fremont and uh, why was he dealing with the Mexican authorities? Okay. Uh, Fremont it was a frontier explorer and uh, he was therefore a military man as virtually all of the official frontier explorers were. Um, and once the war broke out with Mexico, uh, President Polk uh, told him to go to uh, California to take over California for America, because that was sort of the whole point of uh, the war, right? He raised a group of 62 men, arrived in California, and went to explain to the um, uh, Mexicans that America was now in charge. And for some bizarre reason, uh, it turned out that that pretty much worked. And he was reinforced uh, by a uh, naval frigate uh, slightly later that year, about a month later. Um, they took over Monterey, raised the flag, and... And this is John Charles Fremont. John Charles Fremont. The great pathfinder. Yes. He then uh, raises a slightly larger uh, group of men and rides south and takes over uh, Santa Barbara. And that pretty much finishes off California. And the goal, obviously, is to get California into the uh, embrace of the Holy Republic before gold is found, because otherwise that gold does not go to the United States. That gold goes to France or Britain or, worst case scenario, the Confederacy, which are all bad things. I think we can all agree. Uh, well, I think it's self-explanatory why uh, giving tons of gold to the Confederacy is a bad thing. Why is it a bad if uh, France or Britain get it. Well, France would get it uh, because of their influence in Mexico after um, uh, the, the uh, imposition of, Ma of Maximilian's uh, rule uh, by the French. They uh, moved in, they put a, a Habsburg uh, cousin onto the throne of Mexico and basically started to run Mexico as their own fief. And if they'd been running a Mexico that was producing literally 45% of the gold in the world, they perhaps would have reinforced that army a little bit. There would have been, at the very least, a great power war over California, which would have killed an awful lot of people, got an awful lot of cities bombed, created a great deal of tourists and problematic behavior. And it would have gone not to the good French that we know now, the, the good uh, news Republicans, but it would have gone to filthy imperial France, uh, run by jerks in beards, and we don't like those guys. Uh, also, it would have been run for the um, uh, uh, weakening of the United States. So even if 
uh, it was French Mexico, they would then have continued to, uh, interfere in, uh, United States affairs because the last thing they want is a strong American country saying, Oh, look who's sitting on a mountain of gold at the end of a very long supply line. It's France. Uh, so what they would be doing is always, uh, causing trouble and stirring up more, uh, rebellions and such. The British likewise, um, part of the reason the British sort of, uh, uh, grew up and accepted the 49th parallel, uh, is that, uh, Polk had the, um, the local preponderance of forces present in the West. And that's why we get Oregon and, uh, Canada got British Columbia eventually. And so the, uh, if the British, on the other hand, had detached California from Mexico as they were trying to do at the time and almost did during the Civil War, in fact, uh, the hated British, then they would have wound up with all that gold and they would have had a global navy to support it as opposed to a hilarious uh, French supply line, and it would have been a much harder fight to get it away from them. There would probably have been a series of wars between America and Canada. And at some point, um, uh, the worm of industrial production and short supply lines would turn and uh, Canada would get invaded. And I think, Robin, you would have to agree that being occupied by America is at least a suboptimal timeline, if not a literal dystopia. Yes, this is all beginning, beginning to sound like a rather parochial, what is good for America is good for time incorporated thing. But now that you've got to that, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm willing to cut you some slack. And for our British listeners uh, who are going, well, oh, I wouldn't mind a spot of gold. Uh, the answer is there would be a big, great power war that would kill a lot of people. Yes. And also, uh, you don't, you don't deserve it because you, uh, and until you can play with your other things, right. Then you don't get all the gold. That's just the rule. So, uh, some people may still feel like this is an argument that um, America is the best, uh, husbander of gold, but uh, let's move on from the... Uh, Given that we spent that gold to crush the Confederacy, I think that we were the best husbander of gold. You don't want the Confederacy crushed? You write in. You, you just go ahead and say, that. hey, let's let the Confederacy live. Let's not give America all that gold. Let's not give that gold to President Lincoln. Let's undo the Homestead Act. You're the worst person in the world, imaginary listener. Look, when, whenever you're crushing the Confederacy, lead with crushing the Confederacy. So, uh, that's what you needed to do and why it was a good thing. How did you do it? Well, uh, fortunately, the, um, the situation in Mexico during uh, Santa Ana's uh, regime was about as terrible as the situation in much of the distant provinces, I guess, of the empire. Uh, Yucatan, about that same time, actually emerged in open rebellion against Mexico. The, the larger question is that if Mexico had had an efficient at what, to all intents and purposes, colonial administration, even though it's geographically connected to Mexico, it's being run as a distant colony. Um, if they'd had an efficient colonial administration in the first place, they would have um, perhaps not had uh, the problems with Texas that began the whole situation. And second of all, they wouldn't have been able to be um, uh, taken over so easily by Santa Ana because they would have had a more robust the national culture, I guess. And, and so the uh, end result, though, is that it's because the Mexican uh, authorities are uh, under-resourced, they are under-motivated, they have poor morale because they, by and large, if you're sent to run California, you are not in favor in Mexico City, and they don't have any particular uh, interest in stopping what is, after certainly after the example of Texas, seen as an irresistible force. And it is my goal, my uh, task merely to, with the help perhaps of a little tequila, uh, 
emphasize the irresistibility of the force and make sure that on the specific day, everyone's feeling hungover and not like marching around in the hot sun fighting American Marines. So is this uh, one of your easier uh, fixes to the time stream? Uh, yeah, um, Rich Fryer says it's difficult to stop, but, uh, I've had more difficult provinces to detach from more difficult empires, certainly. <laughs> um, uh, again, if you can conquer California with, uh, 90 guys, then it, it wasn't that hard for me to help you do it, I think. Um, I'm good, but I'm not that good. The, the, the amount of, of pulque I had to distill just to get Cortez off the coast of Mexico is, is a whole different deal. But yeah, the, uh, the, the situation in, uh, California at the time was such that literally the first large power that took it would get it. And Britain was trying to take it and was only being stopped by the Americans, uh, in Oregon. Uh, France coveted it and then wound up taking Mexico only after California had left. If there'd been a Japanese empire at the time, if the Japanese, for example, had not turned away from the gun and the ocean going ship, uh, Mexico probably would have been Japanese because the Japan current just runs right along there. Uh, the Russians even tried to take it, but they got distracted by um, uh, the war against Napoleon and a lot of other things. And so their Fort Ross there in uh, the bay was, was never reinforced. Also, the British were able to cut the Russian supply line in a way that uh, no one was necessarily able to uh, cut the British supply line. So you're, you're really looking at a great power struggle over California that Mexico is winning by default until America actually puts, and again, literally 90 guys on the field and says, it's ours. So there you go. Well, as we all know about aspirational fiction, that <laughs> when it, it seems like the hero has an easy job to uh, fulfill and uh, everything seems to be uh, ticking along easily towards an anticlimax, always something happens at the last minute to spin things out of control and give them a problem that they uh, weren't prepared for. So this obviously uh, tells us that rival uh, time agents, uh, uh, perhaps of a uh, pro-Confederate uh, nature, um, intervened in some way, and you had to counter them. So uh, what happened there? Well, that was when uh, we were, uh, everything was going great. We're all marching south. Um, the population of, of California is by and large okay with American occupation until we get down to Los Angeles, uh, which is always a problem child. Uh, the governor fled Los Angeles just as had been my intent, but there were a number of, uh, independent Californios under a guy named Jose Maria Flores, who, uh, perhaps sensed that he did not want California to be American, uh, himself, um, resisted, uh, the American garrison and therefore, uh, the, uh, uh, Navy and, uh, General Stockton had to send, uh, reinforcements and they got beat at Rancho San Pedro. Um, and then General Kearney, uh, rides across New Mexico and manages to lose a battle in San Diego. But, uh, eventually Stockton rescues Kearney and the two of them move north from San Diego to take Los Angeles in 1847. And that ends the war for Los Angeles. So it is, the and I don't accuse Jose Maria Flores of being a time guy. I say that my shadowy time opponent recognized that Jose Maria Flores was the only guy in California who could pour sand out of a boot and showed up with his own <laughs> um, uh, filthy stimulants uh, to encourage Jose Maria to um, uh, resist uh, a collection of not super competent American military men, it must be said. Um, uh, but of course, as is the case with so many of my opponents, too little, too late. And, um, uh, they got stomped by the American Navy. So, but surely you had to, to do something in order to, to change the situation. 
Well, um, the crucial thing that I had to do was just, uh, make sure that Stockton doesn't get himself turned around, uh, in the various mountains and whatnot. Because again, Los Angeles is very tiny. It, it's not stretching out. Everything there is, is mountains and scrub and desert. And, uh, it could very easily have been that Flores could have sort of gotten himself out of the box, gone into the ranchos and started a long guerrilla campaign as opposed to neatly bottling himself up in, um, uh, San Gabriel and, uh, getting, um, uh, captured which is what I wanted to do. So it's a matter of making sure Stockton has the right maps and uh, distracting Flores's distractor by um, uh, a careful game of cat and also cat uh, so that the situation is then left to the force the local forces on the ground, the balance of forces there. Uh, well, I think uh, since we've uh, not only covered uh, what you did, but what you did at the last minute to stop someone from undoing what you did, that we have uh, fully explained uh, this particular time-incorporated mission and therefore completed yet another successful podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Relieve yourself of excess gold nuggets by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such illustrious patrons as Andrew Miller. And Norman Dean. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter book, or conical morphology by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff. <laughs>